Well, then we continue our series in the book of John, the Gospel of John. And we've come now almost to chapter 12, but we're going to read a little bit of the end of chapter 11 together with the first verses in chapter 12. So John 11, 55 through 12, verse 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to that passage and read along quietly as I read along aloud. John chapter 11, verse 55. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the, Jew, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may, might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, we praise you for your word. We thank you, we praise you for your works. We thank you this morning and we praise you for the person of Jesus Christ who has come for us to give us life. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to grow us up in him in faith. We pray for the many people who are not with us this morning, many of our congregants members who are sick and at home, perhaps traveling, Lord, we pray for them. We ask that you'd be with them. We pray for those in our congregation who are in need of jobs or in need of housing, Lord. We ask for your provision just as you taught us. Give us this day our daily bread. And so too, we ask you, Lord, for the things that we need, not only to live, but to glorify and honor you. And we ask now, as we turn to your word, that you would change us by it. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. All in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, we come now to the final week of Christ's life before his death. John begins this section by telling us that the Passover is at hand, and because the Passover is at hand, Jerusalem is then filled with Jews from outside of the city, from all over Judea and Galilee, who have come there to celebrate the Passover rituals. Many would come well before the Passover day, so that week was a week that was busy in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is... Not only busy, but John tells us it's a buzz with talk about Jesus Christ. The stories evidently had spread, especially the story 
of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead had spread all over town. But something else had spread all over town. And that was that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious authorities, the council, had decided to arrest Jesus. They were looking for him. Jesus was in trouble. He was in legal trouble. And the authorities had sent out this special alert in Jerusalem. They had given this announcement to all the people in Jerusalem that if anyone saw Jesus, they were not to associate with him. They were not to listen to his teaching. They were to go immediately to the authorities and notify them so that they could arrest Jesus. So then the question in Jerusalem, the question that everyone's asking is, will he show up? You know, the last two Passover feasts, he was there. Most of the Jewish feasts in the last two years, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for them, and he's used them to teach many people because people came to Jerusalem for those feasts, so he would teach in the temple, teach outside of the temple. And so now everyone's asking the question, is he going to show up? Will he show up like he did last year? And risk it this year, risk the temple guards arresting him. Or will he be MIA? Well, what they didn't know was that not only was Jesus going to come to Jerusalem for this Passover, but that it would be his last Passover. And in fact, in a way, it would be the last Passover because Jesus coming to Jerusalem for this Passover was him coming to be slaughtered as the Passover lamb that his people might be set free. So beginning in chapter 12, there are six days until Passover, and that means that this was the Saturday before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus had come to Bethany, we're told, for a dinner with his friends. Bethany, you will remember, was a small town that was not far outside of Jerusalem. It was the town that Lazarus and his sisters were from, and they were all there. The family was there. Martha was there serving the guests. Lazarus was there. We're told reclining at the table with Jesus, which was a common practice at the time. Guests would lounge around the dinner table as we might lounge in our living room, taking their time, eating the meal and conversing and enjoying each other and enjoying the good food and the good drink. And Mary, of course, is there as well. And in the story, she plays the part of the central character because of what she does. The disciples of Jesus are there as well, indicated to us by Judas protesting Mary's act of devotion towards Jesus. And then the scene ends with Jesus rebuking Judas and defending Mary. So we have those three characters in this story. We have Mary and her act of devotion. And then we have Judas and his, his protesting to her act of devotion. And then Jesus finally defending Mary and rebuking Jesus. Well then, let's look closer and see what we might glean from John's account of this dinner party, and that's what we could call it. It was a feast or a dinner party. I wonder if you've ever been to a party with friends or a, a meal with friends and everything's going really well and you're having lots of fun and the conversation's flowing and all of that, and then suddenly something happens and it turns from celebratory and fun to strange and awkward. Well, that's what happens, as you can imagine. That's probably how many of the guests felt at this dinner party. Verse 1, we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they give a dinner party for him there. I'm sorry, I added party. It was in my head. So they give a dinner for him there. And if you like a dinner party, 
Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So first, Mary's act of devotion. And before we consider her act, we must note the occasion for the meal. Jesus was the guest of honor, we might, we might call him. The dinner was given, John says, the dinner was given for him. And if you've been with us in John for the last couple of weeks, you won't have to uh, think hard to imagine why they gave a dinner for Jesus. This was a meal that was celebrating the, the, the return of Lazarus, their brother, back from the dead. This was a dinner given in honor of the one who had brought him back from the dead, in honor of Christ. It was a, a thank you feast for Jesus, dedicated to him, celebrating who he was and what he had done. And for all the guests that were invited, there was Lazarus, the man who was dead, who was in the grave for four days, sitting right next to Jesus at the table, bearing witness to what the Lord had done for him. I wonder if Lazarus shared his experience of death at this dinner party. What it was like for him to be in the presence of God in heaven one moment and in the next moment to be hearing the voice of Christ calling him back. Perhaps Martha or Mary recounted how Jesus simply called his name, Lazarus, come out. The best part of the story. My Lord, he's been dead for four days. For four days, as the KJV says, he stinketh. No, what are you doing? Lazarus, come out. That's all he said. Can you imagine them telling a story? All Jesus said was Lazarus came out. And he came out of the tomb. He still had his grave clothes wrapped all around him. And all the guests would have sat in amazement and wonder as they listened and looked upon Lazarus right there, alive and well. And then their gaze would have gone from Lazarus to Jesus, the one who did the impossible, the one who defeated death. He was sitting right there with him. He was eating and drinking as any man would eat and drink, but he wasn't just a man. He was the Savior. He was the Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth, and his glory is beginning to shine before them. Now for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, there must have been a sweet mixture. You can imagine a sweet mixture of amazement at Jesus himself, just wonder at Jesus himself what this miracle proved about who he was, that he was the resurrection and the life. And with that wonder and amazement, there was this mix as well of overwhelming gratitude to Jesus for what he had done for them. He had brought their family back together. They had been separated by death and he had brought them back together. Now, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they may have been threatening people who associated with Jesus, but Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they didn't mind at all. Their allegiance was to Christ. They had come to know him as the son sent from the father. They had come to know him as the resurrection and the life, the savior, the one who had come to save his people from their sins. And so they put together this feast in honor of him and what he had done. And Martha serves the Lord by serving the guests and Jesus this meal. And Lazarus, he bears witness to the truth by simply being there with them, perhaps recounting some of the story. And then Mary, on her end, she shows her devotion to Jesus 
her love for him, her thankfulness, her gratitude toward him by anointing him with this expensive ointment and then wiping his feet with her hair. Many have called this act of Mary a display of extravagant devotion to the Lord. And the reason why they say that is because of the value of the perfume or ointment that Mary expends upon the Lord. Nard was an aromatic ointment or oil that came from a plant in northern India. And to say that this was an expensive perfume or ointment is actually an understatement. If if Judas was correct in his estimation of the value of what Mary used on Jesus, it would have been worth close to a year's wage for the typical worker of the time. A year's wage, think about that. Now to put it in our time and context, that means it was worth thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. This little jar of perfume oil. Now I don't think calling what Mary did extravagant is actually appropriate, and I'm gonna tell you why later, so you're gonna have to wait for that. But I can understand why some might use that word for it. This ointment that she used was probably a family heirloom. Certainly it was of great value to Mary, very likely the most valuable thing that she owned. And out of love for her Savior and gratitude for what he had done for her, awe at who he was, she gave it up. She broke the seal and she spent it on him. She showed him great honor even letting down her hair, something that would have been very humbling for a woman to do in public at that time. And even more humbling than that, she wiped his feet with her hair as she anointed them with this aromatic oil. Do you know how people viewed even touching someone's feet at that time? To wash someone's feet was seen as a work not fit even for a servant. Only the lowliest of the slave could be made to wash his master's feet. And while Mary was not washing Jesus' feet, presumably he had already washed his own feet by this point, even this act of her using her hair as a cloth to wipe up her Lord's feet would have been seen and understood as a humble act of submission and service to the Lord. And as Mary does this, we're told, John tells us that the house became filled with the fragrance of the ointment. She anointed Jesus with this expensive oil and the effect was a pleasing aroma to the Lord and to all who were in the house. Her act of devotion was a blessing to all who were in the house. The fragrance spread throughout the house, but like a masking stench to the sweet smell, Judas speaks up. He protests this lavish gift that Mary had given to Jesus. After all, what quantifiable good did it accomplish? If only she had sold it and used the money to do something practical. It wasn't expedient, if you remember last week. If only she had used it for something practical, something of tangible value like feeding the poor. But this, Judas says... This is just irresponsible extravagance. After all, who needs their feet anointed with expensive perfume that accomplishes nothing other than the enjoyment of smelling its scent? Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and I love how John tells us then in parentheses here for us in our translation, he who is about to betray him, 
said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. While Mary serves as an example to us of genuine devotion to the Lord, a willingness to honor Jesus at great personal cost, to consider Jesus as worth more than any earthly possession, Judas, on the other hand, plays the part of a greedy, thieving hypocrite. And we can learn from greedy, thieving hypocrites because none of those characters, characteristics are beyond us, are they? So let's think about his protest to Mary's actions here. What was his reasoning for why Mary should not have done what she did with her ointment? Well, his stated reason was that she could have used it for a better purpose, namely selling it and giving the money to the poor. Now, Mary had given it up. She had not used it for her own selfish purposes. It was her own possession, but she didn't use it for a selfish purpose. It was hers, and she spent it on the Lord. She gave it to the Lord. And was that not a good thing? Yet Judas was quick to judge. He was quick to judge Mary's generosity and worship, her worship to the Lord. He was, uh, he was quick to say, you shouldn't have used it for that. You should have used it for this. Your generosity isn't good enough. You should have been generous in this way and not that way. We should be wary of that kind of judgmental spirit in our lives, the kind that is quick to judge a good action. Why? Because we can think of a better one. <laughs> the kind that always knows what others ought to be doing with what they have. Now, without knowing that Judas had an ulterior motive for what he said, even still, we can hear his reasoning and be warned not to follow the same line ourselves. Was Mary's choice to use this perfume to honor the Lord wrong in any way? No, absolutely it was not. And Judas had no reason to object. In fact, Mary's gift to Christ was a costly gift. It was costly to her. She gave what was hers to give. And Judas, if you think about it, Judas was happy to tell Mary how she should have used what was hers to give. Because saying so didn't cost him anything. He was happy to weigh in on how she ought to have been generous with what she had. But Judas also teaches us another lesson here. And that is that people can preach a righteous cause for a hidden unrighteous motive. People can preach a righteous cause for a hidden unrighteous motive. Now, the reason why I used hypocrite to describe Judas is that John tells us flat out that Judas didn't speak out of compassion for the poor. He didn't say this because he actually really cared about the poor, but rather because he was a thief, John said, and he would regularly help himself to those kinds of donations to the poor that ended up in his money bag or in the disciples' money bag, and he would help himself whenever he thought it best. In other words, he spoke as if he cared about the poor, but it was all an act. He was just an actor. He really, he, he preached righteousness, but he really just wanted to line his own pockets. And we should not be so naive to think that this very same tactic is not employed today, especially in the public square. 
You want to gain a following? You want to run for office? You want to raise some funds? Take up what is seen as a righteous cause and preach it, and then what? Then profit from it. I mean, we think of all kinds of examples of that happening around us. Now, we may not know what is in their hearts, but we ought not be naive to the depravity of man and his propensity to utilize this tactic of Judas to preach a righteous cause for a hidden and selfish motive or unrighteous motive. Now, to push the matter maybe a little closer to home, we should be cautious in our lives of preaching a righteous cause as a means of any selfish gain. Preaching a righteous cause as a means of any selfish gain. It might not be for the purpose of lining our pockets or, or getting money or gaining a following, but it could be for the purpose of bolstering our ego. It could be for the purpose of what we might call signaling our virtue. And it can sound a lot like Judas, can it? Being offended on behalf of someone else. Correcting misguided action with a superior or more virtuous way. Representing the underrepresented. Telling people how they ought to be generous with what is theirs to be generous with. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should never preach a righteous cause or that there's never a time or reason to do any of these things, but that we should guard our mouths from saying these things out of the desire to simply prove ourselves to others. Preach righteousness or a righteous cause to improve our image or to show ourselves to be more virtuous than others. Judas's protest may have convinced some at the table that he was truly a compassionate man whose primary concern in life was the poor. But the Lord Jesus Christ knew his heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows ours. Now then we come to Christ's defense of Mary. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus could have said to Mary, I really appreciate, I, I do, Mary, I do appreciate the gesture and all. But you know, Judas has a point. This just isn't necessary. I mean, I love the aroma. It's, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I can see your faith and your love and wanting to honor me with this expensive oil. But really, it would have been better if you kept it. And it'd be better if you keep whatever is left and you sold it. I'd rather the funds go to, to, to the poor. I'd rather it go to giving, helping the poor than you having spent it on me in this way. It's frivolous. But he doesn't say that, does he? Matthew's gospel records Christ's words here as well, and they shed a little bit more light on what Jesus said to her. Matthew 26, 10, he says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it in, to prepare me for burial. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that because the, the poor will always be around, we shouldn't concern ourselves with helping the poor. No. 
He was saying that helping the poor was not a fleeting opportunity. That, that, that the good work of helping the poor could go on at any time. So Mary's act, act of devotion was absolutely appropriate. He's, he calls it a beautiful thing. It was appropriate because he would soon no longer be with them. It would know, pretty soon she wouldn't have the opportunity to show Jesus honor like this. And it was going to be so soon that he wouldn't be with them that it could be said that when she anointed his body with this ointment, she was preparing his body for his death. Now, how appropriate then when you think about it that Mary gave this honor to her Savior who was about to give his body as a sacrifice for her sins and indeed for the sins of the whole world. The value of spending the perfume in this way was that it showed Mary's devotion to Jesus as the one, listen, listen, as the one who was worthy of that gift. Mary's love for Jesus was related to her, his, her esteem of him. She esteemed him as worthy of the expenditure of this family heirloom. She esteemed him as worthy of this expensive perfume. He was more precious to her. He was more valuable to her than the possession of this ointment. Now, I told you I was going to explain why I wouldn't use the word extravagant to describe Mary's act of devotion here. And now you've hung along with me this long. I am going to tell you why. Here's why. If you look up what the word extravagant means, you'll find that the word extravagance or extravagant implies a lack of restraint. It's an impulse buy. That was an extravagant purchase. What, what, what did they mean? It was an impulse buy. There was a lack of restraint. It's used to describe something um, it, that you spent too much on something. That was extravagant. It, it was, it, 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 you spent more than what it was worth. If you look up synonyms for extravagant, you'll find words like overdone, excessive, or, or listen, overgenerous. But what Mary did for Jesus could not be described as excessive or overgenerous. The gift she gave was not too much. The honor she showed to Christ was not excessive. There was no lack of restraint. Why? Why? Because Christ was worthy of it. And his rebuke to Judas, actually here's the crazy thing, his rebuke to Judas confirms that. When he rebukes Judas, he says, she has done a beautiful thing. In other words, I'm worthy to receive. Judas, you don't value me. You don't understand who I am. I am worthy to receive this kind of honor. He could say what he said because even his feet were indeed worthy to be anointed with the most costly ointment that man could ever produce. The greatest sacrifice Mary could give to honor Christ could never, could never have been too much. You see, our Savior is worthy to receive honor at great personal cost. Jesus is worthy of our greatest possessions. He's worthy of our unreserved devotion, our absolute surrender and sacrifice and submission. 
There is nothing that we can give in obedience and worship to the Lord that could ever, ever be too much. Judas did not value Christ as worthy of such devotion. Mary saw him as worthy of her best treasure. Judas saw him as valuable only for the sake of what he could get from Jesus. That's why he hung around. That's why he was Jesus' disciple. What he could get from Jesus. And it's not long after this that he does the opposite of what Mary does here. Instead of giving up earthly goods for the sake of honoring Christ, he gives up Christ for the sake of earthly goods. 30 pieces of silver. And so we're put in a place, friends, where we're faced with this contrast between Judas and Mary. And we're faced with this question, am I like Judas? Am I more like Judas? Or am I I more like Mary? Do I esteem Christ as worthy of any costly sacrifice I could give? Is there any obedience in my life, command that he's given me that I say that's just going too far? Is there any worship I could give him that I think that's a bit extravagant? Am I eager to honor him, honor him in my life with all that I have? Is my giving here to gospel ministry a burden or is it a joy? Are there certain valuable possessions in my life that I would hold back from him? Well, let us pray that the Lord would give us hearts like Mary. That as we consider who he is and what he has done for us in laying his life down for us to give us salvation, to reconcile us to God, that our faith, that our gratitude, that our love for him would cause us to say, he's worthy of all that I have. He's worthy of all that I am. When I meditate upon the cross, when I meditate upon his condescension to come to earth, when I meditate upon what he has done for me, when I think of who he is, the son sent from the father, truly God and truly man, my heart is filled with gratitude and love for him. So that I say he is worthy of all that I have and all that I am. And nothing I can give to him would in the true sense of the word be extravagant at all. Well, let's pray. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
Oh, Lord, may our hearts cry out the same. We ask that you would reveal to us, open our eyes to the glory and the majesty of our Savior and the wonder of what he has done for us, that we too might proclaim worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Worthy to receive all of my devotion, any sacrifice, all of my love, all of my submission, all of my obedience. Worthy is he in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, amen.